Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. This is a conversation we had a couple of weeks ago with Angus Kelly. Some of you will remember him from Irish Rule of Law International and how he took a sabbatical to go to Ukraine to look into war crimes since the Russian invasion. He was back in Dublin for a few days over Christmas and came into the Tortoise Shack to have a conversation that I think you all want to hear. If you're listening, if you enjoy what we do and you want the podcast as quickly as we turn them around, including lots of exclusives, uh, Rory just had a conversation with the Ombudsman for Children. Myself and Martin sat down to talk about the latest on his health and how he's feeling about the news at the moment. Issam Adwan rejoined us from Gaza to talk about the Israeli government that has come into power with the priority of making the land exclusive for the Jewish people. Uh, so we know how problematic that is. And then we also had a great conversation with Richard Murphy, Professor Richard Murphy in the UK, a deep dive into 2023, what's ahead, both for the British economy and the wider society. I, again, as usual, really, really enjoy talking to Richard. He's a listener favourite. All of those are available right now on patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. It's a price for a fancy cup of coffee once a month and it helps us keep the show on the road. It's tough out there at the moment, we know that, but please, if you can, if you value what we do, the podcast is free, but it does have value. And if there's thousands of you listening, and there are, we need some of you to help pay it forward and keep it free. That's one more time, patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack, and I'll let you enjoy the podcast now. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber Podcast. My name is Tony Groves and we are entering 2023 as we mean to go on, looking at aspects of global justice, uh, campaigns that are taking part, taking place across the globe and issues that we also talk about locally and, and we find that all struggles maybe are universal and that's one of the things that we talked about on this podcast since its inception almost six years ago now. Uh, unfortunately, Martin continues to be unwell so if you could, please uh, you know, cross your fingers and maybe uh, send him a tweet or a DM or a WhatsApp if you have his number and wish him all the best. Uh, we all hope he is back on the mic in early 2023. Anyway, enough of my rabbiting on. I am delighted to be rejoined by uh, Executive Director of Irish in- of Irish Law uh, International, but but he's on sabbatical currently. And listeners will have heard Angus Kelly before. And the reason he's on he's on sabbatical is because Angus went off to Kiev to talk to the Ukrainian. Um, European, it's the EUAM, the European Advisory Mission, looking into war crimes within Ukraine. Angus, it's great to meet you in person. How are you keeping? Thanks a lot, Tony. Much appreciated. And just a good night to Martin. Hope he feels better soon. Um, even though he'll probably then uh, argue with me all the time. But there you go. That's part of the fun, have the fun of it. He absolutely loves the, the backwards and forwards. And he's raging to miss this one because he does love the backwards and forwards with yourself. But look, if we can just go to the last few months since we last spoken. You were, uh, we were talking, you were about to step away from your role um, and you were going on sabbatical and you were going to work in Kiev. Since then, you've been um, working with a, a team in terms of A, looking into some of the issues that have happened and B, helping some of the Ukrainian uh, legal professions to how to best investigate this. How have you find, found the experience and, and, and what what has it been like? Uh well, yeah, it's been very, very interesting. You know, stepping away from my role as executive director of Irish Rule of Law International was difficult because it, uh, and I'm obviously very biased, but the organization does amazing work. Uh, my colleagues, both in Ireland, both in Belfast and Dublin, but also in, in Malawi. And then the work we do in Tanzania with our colleagues in Tanzania and South Africa and Zambia is very, very important. 
Um, so that was, I won't lie, uh, that was difficult, um, you know, just to take away, to move away from that. Um, but that's, you know, that's, uh, I took the opportunity to go to Kiev as we discussed and the Irish government sent me over there. So the Department of Foreign Affairs seconds me to go work uh, for the EU advisory mission in Ukraine. And um, so I am working for, for you and all the listeners or many of the listeners because I'm um, because the state is sending me over there and I think that's very important because people wonder you know uh, we're doing all this work with these poor Ukrainian refugees who've had to come here but also what's the government doing on the other side and there's been criticism of the government etc etc but like one of the things they're effectively doing is sending people like me can over I, there Can I say the criticisms of the government We on this mm. podcast I think actually we'd all acknowledge that Ireland has really stepped up I mean when you put it in context do you recall when Enda Kenny pledged to take, well, I think it was 15,000 Ukrainian refugees, and we didn't break 1,500. Mm. Now, we can talk about the differences between yeah. that and, and say what that means. But no one can say that our, our response to this particular crisis has not been anything other than exceptional in many ways. Well, no, I'm glad to hear you say that. But I do, I do think that's, you know, there's a discourse out there that, like, you know, is very critical of the government, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously, I'm not talking about the political side, but on the, the bureaucratic side with the Department of Foreign Affairs, that's there's there's myself and uh, there's five other Irish Yeah. Uh, staff members who are out there working, so working hard trying to help the Ukrainians. With, um, you know, there's a wider mandate. So EUAM was set up in 2014 after the Maidan Revolution um, to assist um, the Ukrainian authorities with what's you know commonly known in the jargon as security sector reform. So it's kind of policing, justice, judiciary, prosecutors, um, et cetera, et cetera, helping them reform their system. You know, we're there at their invitation. Um, and that changed in April this year, in 2014, after, you know, after the Russian expansion of the war, because the war has been going on since 2014. I think that's something we all forget a lot. I think that's really important because when you talk about, so we talk about the International Criminal Court yeah. in terms of this work. Yeah. Neither Ukraine nor Russia are signatories to that. Correct. However, Ukraine's position changed in, in relation to the UN, I believe, in 2014 um, on the basis in, in that... In relation to the... Sorry to interrupt, but in relation to the International Criminal Court, they... Uh, they uh, set in play um, a series of procedures so that they could come within the remit of the International Criminal Court and that was furthered in 2015 so so there is an International Criminal Court involvement and they're on the ground working away and you know it's one of the organisations that our organisation again representing the, the good taxpayers of Ireland and the good taxpayers across the EU that we kind of cooperate um, with the ICC but also with other international actors like the UK and the US particularly in the um, in the what's called the ACA uh, the Atrocities Crimes Advisory Group. Um, so that's something we're doing a lot of. But most importantly, we're there to assist the Ukrainians, to assist uh, their policing, uh, their prosecutorial uh, actors, uh, also their training facilities so we can help them. Because obviously the massive amount of crimes that have taken place, hmm. you know, enormous amounts of crimes. Um, and any prosecution service in the world would be overrun. It doesn't matter if you were the wealthiest, um, you know, most efficient country in the world, this would be impossible because just the level of Which crimes. We know, we know in Ireland we have a shortage of judges to, to, to get through just normal case yeah. law. Yeah. Without having this sort yeah. of stuff on your, yeah. on your on your doorstep, but I, I'm interested. That I know there's already been <laughs> successful prosecutions there, and one example actually saw a, a man imprisoned. I think it was a 21 year old in prison for life, and that was subsequently reduced to 15 years. Can I ask you about your opinion on the jurist? How how these things have operated thus far? Well, I think it's very difficult for the Ukrainian side. Um, you know, hopefully we're there to assist them, but it's very difficult because of the scale of crimes we're talking about. Mm. Also, um, you know, the constant attacks mean that, you know, you're 
in a in a in a system whereby you have to get out in any system where you have to get out there and see the crime scene and investigate it. And if you have a certain number of police officers and a certain number of prosecutors, um, you know, and the crime scenes keep occurring, mm. that that puts enormous pressure on the cases keep piling up. So I think that's a key part of our, uh, of hopefully what we can assist our Ukrainian colleagues is finding ways um, to assist, to, to improve that because that's just hugely difficult. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't, it's almost unprecedented in many ways because of the movement as regards international criminal justice. And, you know, these things in history would have been, there wouldn't have been the, the scope or the knowledge or the ability to do that in the we past. Would, we wouldn't have had the roadmap, would we? Yeah. And that's hopefully what we're able to assist our Ukrainian colleagues with that roadmap. Can I, before you left, I asked the question, um, and, and not even ironically, uh, how, what was the appetite within Ukraine to look at, at any problems that they may have had encountered with troops on their own side or with, with actions on their own side? Now you've been on the ground. Mm. Have you found any, any kind of, um, reticence to, to look at any, any issues? No, no, because they've been, you know, the stuff that has arisen and, you know, it's not, it's not a, a secret stuff has arisen in the media mm. and they have said they will investigate it. Um, and, you know, I think a key part of criminal justice is Lady Justice's scales of justice and her blindness. Mm. And, you know, again, there's something to come back that, you know, I think I referred to the last time I talked to two E lads. Like we're very lucky in Ireland that we have a far from perfect system, but compared to most places, very good. Um, but I do think the Ukrainian, in my experience at least, and I can't speak for this, there is, uh, what I see is that there's an openness to act and to act fairly and to act justly. You know, time will tell, but I can only go on what I see and what I experience and what I hear. And that's there. Um, yeah. So like, but it's, it's, it's difficult. The other thing is just the scale to come back to the scale issue. It makes this all so, so difficult. Well, you've 16 missiles hitting maybe, well, you know, in the last 24 hours yeah. and stuff that there's, there's constantly something new to investigate. Can I ask though, when you're in Kiev itself, yeah. what was life like? You know, this is the question everyone I'm at home for Christmas. Obviously, I'm sitting here we're talking to you in person, which is great to meet in person rather mm. than the, the virtual world we've all lived in for several years, the after effects of COVID, which itself I think is an interesting discussion. Uh, you know, how, as someone who's lived abroad a lot, the changes I see in Irish kind of society with that post-COVID yeah. scenario. But um I suppose most of the time it's very normal in many ways, but mm. very normal and then it's very not normal. So life goes on. I I live in Kiev. I live in an apartment, uh, and um, I walk to work. And uh, this time of year, it's very snowy and very cold. It's uh, although then again, the temperatures have risen a lot, which is another climate emergency. We, we could we could climate talk. emergency <laughs> stuff there, is something. There's there's like there's talk of what is it twenty twenty degrees in 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 Austria or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is like the yeah. the stats are crazy. But anyway, we'll probably come back to that issue. But yeah. but on the um the life goes on. Um, people are very resilient. Human beings are resilient. Mm. You know, you know, up the road, up the north, uh, you know, in Belfast or Derry or Straban or wherever, Portadown, the situation in Northern Ireland for many years shows us people how resilient are, or how resilient people are rather. Um, but also, uh, the Ukrainian people are particularly resilient. Like, if you look at the history of Ukraine, mm. And, you know, I think history is a very important thing to consider in any situation. Well, it didn't begin in 2014. No, it's, it didn't begin in 2014. We could go back to the 1900s if we wanted. Oh, and much further back yeah. even, you know, um, the name of the country, the borderland, the edge. Um, and then the people, it suffered enormously in the First World War. Mm. 
Like when I go to Ukraine, I go, you know, you have to get a train there. You can't fly there because of the war. But you go to the the, the Polish-Ukrainian border and get your train. And that area was like very heavily during the First World War um, was front line kind of territory. Um, so that's there. There's also the forced famines of the Stalinists. Mm-hmm. You know, that happened. Millions of people died in the Holmodor. So and I'm, I'm screwing up that Ukrainian pronunciation, I'm certain. But, um, but like these are really resilient people, mm-hmm. like really resilient people. Because they've had no choice but to be resilient. So this is just another another episode in their really troubled history. But you have to have a lot of admiration for them. Like I think, you know, Timothy Schneider and, you know, I've discussed this with some Ukrainian colleagues because I'm like, because I'm biased because Timothy Schneider reads, writes in English mm. and therefore he's accessible to me. Um, but he's, you know, he was in MIT. He's now in Yale. Um, his course on Ukrainian history is up for free on, on YouTube. If people want to get an, um, a better knowledge, I'd really advocate that. But I ask my Ukrainian colleagues, what do you think of Schneider? And they're like, Schneider's very good for explaining it in a way uh, to you guys that's accessible to people that don't speak mm. Ukrainian or Russian, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, Schneider talks a lot about this. Bloodlands, his book is incredible, 1930 to 1945. And that reads not just Ukraine, but also Belarus, Western Russia, the Baltics, Poland. Wow. Mm. Like, I gave the book to my brother-in-law um, he's American, but his um, family on one side are from that part of the world, the left in, in, in the early 1900s or late 1800s. And I said to him a few months later, what do you think of that? And he says, Angus, that book's amazing. Um, but I can only read six or seven pages mm. at a time. And I says, why? And he says, because it's so grim. Yeah. So tough. There's so much crazy stuff that has gone on in that region. And we forget about that because we're the other side of Europe. We're far away. We, it's not, we're very, um, Anglo-Celtic centric in our worldview. And therefore, you know, it just doesn't occur to it, but the history is immense in that part of the world. Absolutely. And we've, we, we, we know it's, it's that kind of, we, we still live off the idea that, um, the, the Greeks beget the Romans, the Romans beget the Brits and the Brits, the, the Americans. And that's all of history, folks. Yeah. <laughs> Jazz hands. But that's not that that's we know that's not the reality. And, uh, you know, likewise, I'd, I'd recommend the Silk Roads um, uh, book, which is amazing. Yeah, yeah. And, and you can read that and, and get the alternative areas of how it works. But nonetheless, coming back to to the actual the daily life thing sorry yeah, I, so, I was digressing my apologies no not at all but what I, what I mean is what I, what I want to sort of get at is two things the daily life and then the feeling that have they been supported by the EU by the other and and do they feel that maybe maybe they're just a pawn in a, in a, in a bigger game well the honest answer I suppose you'd have to ask Political actors that I have, and and they've said, you know, that they they just want to win this first. I think, like, I think in a war, your primary fixation is on winning the war. Would it could it be any other way in a human level? No, I I just that's why I, that's why I put it to you. Yeah, yeah, could it be any other way? No, I don't think it could be any other way. But I have to say, like, you know, one of the things I was told by friends of mine who'd worked in Ukraine before I went out, and this can sound a little bit plomossy or you know, brown nosing as the Americans would call it. But I have been really impressed with uh, the ability of our Ukrainian colleagues. They're very well, um, you know, they're very well versed. They're very hardworking. They're very committed. Um, you know, and I think that's really impressive. I think they're really impressive people. The country's got massive problems, no doubt about it. It had problems before the, before the, before 2014, from 2014 to, to, to February of this year, or sorry, last, last year, year now. Yeah. But, uh, but, uh, you know, they're working their arse off and they're doing really good work. Um, they need our help. You know, is the EU doing enough? 
Um, I think the EU is doing a lot. Mm. Um, is there room for improvement? There's always room for improvements. You know, I, I think I've mentioned it before, whether it's off, uh, on, on air or not, that like the, the essence of, you know, this is something I think a broader issue that the essence of humanity is its fallibility. So we all make mistakes. And I think in the public discourse, to go a bit philosophical here, that we're, we're, our expectation levels of people are sometimes too high that people make mistakes. We all make mistakes in our lives every day. Mm. So the EU makes mistakes too because it's full of human beings. So we're, there's a lot of work to do. We're getting there. We need to do better. Hopefully we will do better. Hopefully the war will end and therefore we can move into a different mode. But who knows what's going to happen. There's a lot of bloody hope there, unfortunately. No, no, of course there's a lot of bloody hope. But, hope, you know, hope is really important. But a hope also dies last. as that dichotomy <laughs> as well. And the hope that kills you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. But, but just even in the context, going back to is a few weeks ago, we were already at potentially 40,000 potential cases. Oh, I think it's well north of 50,000 now, to be honest with you. Yeah. So, I mean, the this, this, this scope of what you're trying to deal with, um, it's like uh, the old analogy of it's, it's like trying to take a, take a sip of water uh, from a fire hose as your man turns it on. No? Well, you know, in reality, it's our Ukrainian colleagues are having to deal with that. We're there to advise them and to assist them and to do anything we can. But it's their country. They're in the lead. Our, our uh, mandate under that change of mandate I mentioned in 2014 is to assist them in any way we can within what's termed as international crimes, atrocities, crimes, war crimes, genocide, crimes against humanity. Other area, interesting area that a lot of work's been done on is the intersection kind of between um, that war crimes agenda and big environmental damage. Ecocide. Yeah. It's funny. I get a lot of grief for the last year it's over a year now for talking to a couple of um uh i would say pro-government ukrainian mps but how i know them is from the environmental movement yeah i would disagree with them fundamentally on their views on capitalism yeah, yeah you know uh, yeah. but they were involved in talking about going to the eu as part of the eu's um parliament talking about ecocide and and, and this was before the war kicked off yeah, yeah. and uh, they were kind of already at advanced stage there of realizing what Ukraine's resources were and how, you know, we can protect them into that. Do you think that's going to form a, a place or do you think we maybe take those learnings out of this and say, actually, we need something that, that, that runs alongside given that everybody will say to you, okay, this is obviously, this is the most, ex this is the existential threat today, but there's also one that's, that's playing out right now in, in real time. Like, <sighs> You know, this is a really interesting area, I think, and I'm biased because it crosses over things I care a lot about, the nature of the environment, um, the biodiversity crisis, climate emergency, all these kind of things. This is the crossover between that. First of all, the Ukrainians have had ecocide in their criminal code for some time. Yeah. My academic friends tell me, my academic lawyer friends tell me this is a leftover from the old, um, the, the, the previous systems there. Um, that's innovative of, of itself and interesting. You know, should Ireland do something about that? That's an interesting question. Um, different system we have a, they have a codified system they've you know we're, we're going to have our we're going to have our um, citizens assembly on on yeah, yeah. these things and and while it's not perfect it, it's it's as good as some some other systems out there yeah yeah and for sure and you know i i have definite views on that i think it's really really important um but i think um can we do work on this to finish we can do work on this um, we've been asked by our Ukrainian colleagues to assist us with that. I'm working with some of my, my colleagues from EU Pravo Justice, which is an EU-funded project, um, and they have some really excellent people working on that. Um, and hopefully we can we can be of assistance to that. Like, if you look at what's happened, you've got enormous damage of 
like attack on civilian oil facilities. So you have enormous leakage of oil mm. into, you have attacks on nuclear facilities. Like you have, you know, th- literally, you know, it's kind of farcical and I don't mean to be flippant, but if you, like, let's think about this logically. If there's an attack on a nuclear facility, what way is the wind blowing? Mm. Could be the key question. That's how dependent on chance we are with this. This is crazy. Mm. Like completely crazy. Um, You know, Destroying We're the environment. Zavarisha, the, yeah. the second yeah. largest nuclear yeah. Yeah. generator uh, plant in the EU. Well, well no, in, on, in on, Europe. In Europe, Europe. yeah. Um, I'm not sure if the second largest is large, but it's definitely up there. Um, but, um, you know, also like, you know, one of the things when you, you were asking me about life in, in Ukraine, mm. and I um, I had the good fortune of going into Dnipro there a few weeks, which is the fourth biggest city in, in yeah. Ukraine. It's about seven hours drive southeast of um, of Kiev. And we were going down there with our colleagues to to meet our prosecutorial colleagues and policing colleagues and the police, uh, the equivalent of Templemore, the police training college down there, uh, Ministry of Interior Academy, as they call them. Um and like you drive through this, the countryside for seven hours and you just realize, one, how vast the country is. Ukraine is the size of France and Germany Huge. put together. And then the second thing is um, just something that I, you know, we don't appreciate, I suppose, in Ireland because it's just not part of our culture or the, or the, the state we live in. But even in, in, you know, in the UK or, or uh, in much of Western Europe is just these enormous fields, enormous, you know. Um, fields of crops and this comes back to you know a key issue which we're all uh, uh, dealing with which is you know uh, moving into the cost of living crisis is exportation of grain uh, fertilizers uh, you know gas etc let's call it what it is it's it's famine in the horn of africa it's um, it's issues across the globe it's 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 a supply chain issue and it's it's been able to feed if it's livestock that needs that's dependent on some of these produce that we're supposed to get from mm. Ukraine and you know I, I, I'd ask you the question though you know the UN was happy enough to to do a deal where they said well you know we'll exempt Russia on yeah. some of these crops and that fell over very quickly well no my understanding is that they're still exporting grain no they are but the, but the when they when they did the exemption uh, the the how do I put this the idea that then the the trade routes out were, were, were quite <clears throat> complex and, and made much more difficult. So it's been, it's kind of it, the greater good to, to, to appeal to your pragmatism. Uh, we, we, we'd have to say, you know, we have to be able to show people. And I don't think we've done this successfully is show people that, that this is actually linking to the idea that when someone will say to you, you know, every 90 seconds, someone is, 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 is going falling into. Um, food insecurity mm. in the developing world. Mm. I hate that phrase, but this is what we're stuck with, mm. uh, and it's all linked. The global south, yeah, yeah. None of these things are all linked. That's that's you know, and and I suppose that's been hyperventilated because of globalization, but it always existed. Mm. Like if you look through human history, this always existed. It might take longer for the effects to feel further out, but they always humans have been interconnected. So this is not. It's just we. It's why we call Spanish flu Spanish flu. Yeah, you know, yeah. But it originated from a pig Kansas. farm in Kansas. Yeah, 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 for sure. So, so this is not new. Um, but I think it's it's obviously and evidently really really important. Um, so how do we deal with that? That's you know. These are big, big, big political questions. But bringing it back to yeah, come on, let's go back to yeah. let's go back to the actual the actual granular detail of, mm. of so you're out there. Yeah. You're working with a, a team including five Irish people, which is again, 
you know, you don't hear this very often. It's nearly twice. So I'm going to give credit to the Irish state and uh, on the one podcast. There so maybe go. maybe bookmark this and say well, this is the last time we'll do it this year. Um, <laughs> Jamie, Tony. But but um, but nonetheless, when you see that work that's that's going on, do you, do you feel a sense of of um, optimism that the law will will ultimately be some a, a if they hold firm to that that the law is going to be the the, the actual difference maker and so even if it's not in 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 two years or five years because some of these things are going to take a long long yeah. time to wash out yeah i think the law is always part of the answer it's never the whole answer law is a part of society uh, criminal justice is a part of society so it will always form part of the solution it can never be the whole solution and to think that I think that's part of the problem in international criminal justice, personally, that um, we expect too much of international criminal justice, mm -hmm. as in law will not, not, will not change the world. It's a part of our, our human structure, but it's a really important part. Mm. You know, there has to be, if you commit crimes, there has to be a way of holding people to account. Without that, you can't have progression. Now, that's for the Ukrainian people to decide. Mm. Not for me as a foreigner. I'm there to help them in any way I can, but it's not for me to decide. But it is really, really, really important. Can it happen? Yes, I think it can happen. You know, we've seen this in other places. How it will happen and what it will look like, that's the big imponderables. But and what I am certain of is the vast majority of, like, enormously um, clear to me that the vast majority of cases will have to be investigated by our Ukrainian colleagues, mm. will have to be done in Ukraine, and the vast majority of the work will be done in Ukraine. So therefore, And the prosecutions will have to happen. Probably, probably, yeah, yeah. That makes, that makes logical sense. Well, I mean, when we think about... I can hear people shouting at the at their ear, at their AirPods, wherever they're listening, saying, "Saying, you know, what about Tony Blair? What about this?" And we we know there's mm. all this um, mm. Western hypocrisy in many of these things. In certain ways, we've done things, and I call it out. And no, like we we don't have to look at what's happened in the last the last week. We had Ursula von der Leyen welcoming welcoming um, Benjamin Netanyahu back into power in Israel, despite his opening statement being. That he wants to, using again the the old uh, the old uh, biblical references for Judea and Samaria, and I'll talk about taking back the West Bank illegal settlements. So we had to watch that, and you know, you saw. I think it was um, Grace O'Sullivan of the of the Green Party MEP saying, "Delete this on social media." Saying, "Why are we doing this?" And and so we have to we have to wrestle with that. And I understand that you know it's a difficult situation, but when you look again, taking a the tape back if I can back to on the streets of Kiev they're they're not going to be looking at what Ursula van der Leyen is tweeting about this they're not going to be talking about these situations and that we may get into in a few minutes but they're going to say well actually are prosecutions a possible and b can we get to anybody if they're because they're in the Russian state you know can we do that can the Ukrainians do that Right now, very difficult. Mm. There are some trials ongoing. You mentioned one earlier on. There's a few others uh, ongoing. The numbers are small. But the reality is for the prosecution of crimes, you need to be gathering the evidence. You need to be putting together the case file. You need to be progressing that as soon as possible. The longer you leave it, the more difficult it becomes. You know, again, this is my personal bias, but having worked um, in the prosecutor's office at the state court in Bosnia, having worked at the prosecutor's office in in Kosovo, um, having worked in, in the tribunal in Cambodia, that what's very clear to me is the better job, 
it's hugely important that you do a really good job at the start that avoids a lot of the problems in the future. And I know that's a bias because... <laughs> Because I'm doing that, so therefore yeah. I'm, you know, self-propagating my own job in essence. But that's really, really important. The difference, I suppose, here is that that in those kind of situations, we as international came flooding in, and we had executive powers. We don't have executive powers in Ukraine. That's the Ukrainians' uh, prerogative. So we have to do the best job we can to allow them to do that. Mm. Because the longer you leave it, the more people people's memory fades, physical evidence, compiling it, chain of custody, all these things become more difficult if you don't do it properly at the start. You know, if you don't do chain of custody, if the evidence doesn't get passed in the right way, if you don't store the evidence, if you don't take the witness statements in the in the right way, if you have to go back and t- retake witness statements, you re-traumatize people who've suffered enormously. So we need to learn from the mistakes we made in these other places. Mm. And hopefully we can. And will we reach these guys? You know, um, I, I think can that I, can I come in and say you, you gave the comment to um, our, our friend Hannah McCarthy I think that some of these guys might make might might decide to go on holidays at some stage this uh, happens this has all happened all the time yeah this happens people's top memories fade they make mistakes they go to places they shouldn't go people turn up this mm. is you know the whole Interpol arrest warrant red notice uh, mm. area this is all built on this mm. uh, you know People are, again, we're back to that human point. Human humans are <laughs> make mistakes, so this can happen, and I think it will happen personally. Of course, it will. Hubris more than mistakes, to be honest with you. And that that's kind of the worst case scenario. There is another scenario where, um, you know, th- these people do turn up, and there's extraditions or whatever, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That is plausible, plausible, and possible too. It'll be difficult. There's no doubt about it, but it is possible. Yeah, um, and we're back to the hope point, though, eh? Yeah, and and uh, look <laughs> again. I don't. I I don't want to knock back. I just want to. I want to get a sense of. The so, because the scale of this is huge, you're talking about now fifty thousand things that need to be looked into. You're talking about a, a police force that needs to be ramped up, a judiciary that needs to be ramped up, uh, and you're talking about maybe you know a templates that have worked to a degree in other jurisdictions, and they how they have to be mapped onto something something elsewhere. Am I am I correct in that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and I like that's one of the things I think is really interesting is you know learning from. Hopefully bringing those experiences. So in the UAM, I have colleagues who've worked in the Hague of the tribunals, who've worked in the Western Balkans, who've worked in North Africa, who've worked in Southeast Asia in the tribunals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And learning from those experiences and hopefully being able to to discuss those with our Ukrainian colleagues and find better ways to do things. That's really, really important. That's a big part of what we are doing and hopefully will do more of. Can I risk moving us on a little bit to the year ahead? We've had conversations about some of the things that have that are global threats to just uh, the, the legal acts and uh, illegal acts uh courts and rule of law internationally um you mentioned uh you mentioned working in in the balkans but we've seen more tensions rise in kosovo recently we've seen you know that is a very real threat it's it's it, if we were to talk about it now it's a warm risk as opposed to a cold risk you know there's there's talks of you know, even simple things like license plates uh, mm. causing tensions mm. in, in in communities. That's that is that is a, that is a huge challenge. Have you picked up on any of those tensions and and heard from any of your colleagues in those? Yeah, like I'm speaking, very much emphasis. I'm speaking in a personal capacity here, but um, uh, look, diff- in the Balkans, things are very difficult. Mm. You know, and I would always say that. I remember being, I'll give you a little vignette. I remember being in a pub um, and uh, in Pristina in 2014 or 2015 and Ireland were playing England for the first time since the riots in uh, Lansdowne, Road. Lansdowne Road. 
And I remember watching that and uh, there'd been all the trouble and a lot of our colleagues were watching the game in a, a mixed group of of uh, people from, from Kosovo but also people from all over Europe working for the EU there uh, in the prosecution and the policing etc. And they were expecting a big row and um, because of the previous thing and because of the history between the two countries but also because there would be other matches in that sphere of time and um, between various uh, Western Balkan countries ex-Yugoslav countries. Well football was very political. Back yeah, yeah for sure. No well this still is, more, is. This still this is more recently mm. but the point being that I think the situation in Kosovo or Bosnia or the Western Balkans bears a lot of similarities to the situation we see on our own island. Um, and that, I think, takes time. Mm. And that's easier for me to say because I'm not from there. I don't have to live there. I don't have to deal with that on a daily basis. But these things take time. I think there's really capable people there. I think they um, there can be changes there, but we need to have impetus for change and we need to want change. So, I'm hopeful that things can improve there, but it's worrying. There's no doubt about it. And not just there, other places too, like, you know. We'll, we'll talk about that, but I just think, in particularly, you know, yesterday we see Croatia move into take, starting to use the euro. Yeah. And on the flip side, we, we, we hear of tensions in, in Kosovo. And yeah. you kind of have to understand that there's two, there's not, there's more than two paths. There's, and these things are a lot more nuanced than that. But yeah. my point, my point being is when the eyes of the world go away, yeah, uh, and we, I think you touched on it there. You kind of referenced what we would call intergenerational trauma. Yeah, you know, and and it's 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 a very real experience. Yeah, whereby you don't have to necessarily been the person. Yeah, who who was there when the bombs were falling, but if you're in that family, if you're in that part of it, that's that is unfortunately baked in. There's other issues that we we've, we've talked about. I mean, we, <laughs> you made the com- before we came on air. You made the point that um, actually the majority of the world. Is, is kind of is is suffering in some ways you know we yep. there's hope reason for hope we see Lua, Lua getting uh, elected yesterday in Brazil I've spoken at length on this podcast about how, how good I felt about Petro getting elected in Colombia and how he may change things for, for the good there but you know we see the protests in Iran we see the Taliban now uh, moving again to uh, to minimise uh, women's uh, rights in, in Afghanistan <laughs> And I mean, you 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 uh, you uh, challenged me myself on on social media about my my uh, World Cup viewing and, and saying, "Come on, Morocco!" So it's not a good picture, is it, internationally in terms of human rights and and access to justice? No, it's tough. I won't lie. I was. I won't lie that I was much more positive five years ago than I am now, and I'm a pretty positive person. I think. Um, but I won't lie, it's very, very difficult. And my big worry to go back a little bit, but my big worry is uh, is climate emergency and how that will mm. drive things. And that worries me deeply. Like when you have, you know, the US Department of Defense and NATO <laughs> saying that climate, not exactly famed left-wing woke bastions, mm. saying that climate change is a massive issue security-wise, mm. we should all be very worried. You know, I put up a... I reposted someone on LinkedIn there this morning about the temp. You know, you, you touched on it yourself earlier on the temperatures across Europe today, or sorry, yesterday, the first of January. Like that cannot but have enormous effects on us. And you know, <laughs> I can I can just imagine some of my friends hearing me say this and just going, "Oh, this is Angus going off on one of his shindigs again." Well, it is, and but it's, it's like it's really, 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 really worrying. Can I? Okay, so but to put that in context, the, the talk is say a billion people on the move. Now, the issue there is, as, as the UN and NATO have framed it as a security risk, 
is it is it a security risk? Is it a humanitarian? Uh, oh no, I think I think it's a humanitarian thing. In fairness, the UN it was NATO and the US Department of Defense. I was quoting yes, there. Yes, the UN would yes. the UN would say this too, but they would have said it as a humanitarian thing first. Yeah. In fairness, the UN. I think the UN gets a hard time from yeah. people a lot of the time. No, but the UN the UN is actually a good and as good a vehicle as we have. Like I I would love to see the UN talk about tax justice. By the way, yeah, yeah. and we'll get into that twenty twenty three because you know there's no area where countries that are the at the at the expense are losing out on say the expense of say countries for example like Ireland or Luxembourg they can't. Take well, there is a movement to, just to interrupt you and and a, a, a very unrelated point to some degree from our discussion today, but there is a movement to have an international uh, court on corruption. Yes. And, and there's a logic to that, you'd have to say, but, you know, it's an interesting debate that's yeah, going on no, in kind no. of international criminal I've, justice. I've, 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 I've done a lot of work with the, the Global Alliance for Tax Justice and it all fits on, under that umbrella, absolutely. Mm. And the UN is is potentially the right place to have that mm. sit. But going back to, you know, the, you said you were five years ago, you were a lot more op- optimistic. You're talking about the climate crisis putting people making people force people they will have to move they will they cannot stay in certain areas and we've seen this we, we touched on a few minutes ago the, the horn of africa and what's happening mm. there in terms of famine do you where does the law kick in in terms of the because unless human human rights internationally may be well and good in a in a in a statute or in a book mm. or like we, you know there's a un right to housing by the way yeah and we don't have it here yeah, well, the, you know, there's some really interesting case law on this for India. India, the Constitutional Court in India, for instance, has really interesting case law on, on these types of issues. Um, I think that uh, I think that a lot of the time the issue, you know, I'm doing, I'm studying as well at the moment. I'm doing a master's in sustainability leadership. As you do, as you do. Um, we have a group project. So myself and and six of my fellow students are doing um, a group project. And we're looking at the issue of um, renewable energies and the utilization of modern slavery and the production of materials for renewable energies, okay. uh, um, which is really, really sad, depressing. But but one thing that's become clear to my view in the reading I've done as part of my part of the section, I was talking to one of my fellow students about this yesterday, is that a lot of the time the law isn't the issue. Okay. It's the enforcement of the law is yeah. the issue. So, of course, you have to have the law, but it's the enforcement of the law. Now, how do we enforce the law? It's by taking court cases. So there's been really interesting court cases um, in the Netherlands, in the UK, in Australia, Canada, various other places. So this is a movement. It will take time. The law moves slowly. It involves lawyers, your your favorite people, Tony. Um, but but I do think there is a lot of impetus to that. I think it's going to be a really interesting area. Like if you think, you know, in Ireland, for instance, the Climate Bar Association has been set up. Um, they've, they've been doing some really interesting work. Um, like there's a lot of people interested in this area. I also think for Ireland, I suppose what's interesting is the fact that we have a lot of multinational corporations and companies with their Middle East, Europe, Africa, or Europe only, or Europe, Africa, or whatever. Any, yeah, Yeah. any combination of the above, um, based here. And, you know, I I can see cases turning up uh, in in Ireland in the future. This is just me theorizing here, but I can see that happening. we did ask for an exemption for some of these in terms of the EU directive in terms of sustainability in, in, yeah, yeah. in business and that is a problem that is a that is a government problem and a political choice because we, we should not be looking for these exemptions because we can say it's all well and good that they have um, a carbon neutral office down on the, the keys in George's in George's Key or whatever it is uh, yet they're exploiting people in, in other countries and we can just turn away from it and Ireland has a key role like it or lump it in, in that area well, that's why that's to go back to my job I'm on sabbatical with uh, from, but also the wider picture is why important, how important you know the rule of law is. Hmm. And we talked about this back a few months ago before I left to go to Ukraine. 
we're so lucky in Ireland that our system in both parts of the island that our system uh, our systems are really really decent they're mm. far from perfect but they're decent and that's why you know we need to utilize those systems for the betterment of allness in essence that's the root of democracy is the, the rule of law exists lady justice she's blind she has her scales so how we do that that's up to us we're citizens we get to vote you know we're lucky you know to come back to something else you alluded to earlier we're, we're very lucky in the world in the scope of the world that we can vote on these things we can make decisions we need to seize that opportunity all of us like you know um, I know that's very big picture uh, yeah, ethereal no, it's, but it's, it's important I think no I I don't want to belittle that. I just think, you know, when you see, you know, uh, like we were talking before before Christmas with the track that Ivrin about moves to make it access to justice around planning more difficult, that sort of stuff actually has real life implications for the environment, for our lived environment, for biodiversity, for mm. all of these things. And then they say, well, you're just a, a NIMBY or, uh, mm. you know, and it's like, no, 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 no. Let's go back to what you said 15 minutes ago. It's important to get as much of this right as we can at the outset. So then we're not, so we're not mopping up behind us as much as we, yeah. we tend to do. So when it comes to the rule of law, I accept that we maybe have, um, the framework uh, that that can be good but it's a constant it needs constant monitoring you know it's not something that you know we didn't just we didn't win the repeal referendum and everything just went everything was fixed then democracy is a delicate flower no seriously it is and you don't need to look that far to realize that all around the world and there's been you know movement away this has been talked about you know at great length Hmm. um and therefore, we need to be conscious of that. And that's why, you know, for instance, we disagree on things. And that's it's okay to disagree. But I also think, you know, that George Otto Sims, the former Church of Ireland primate of all Ireland, said, you know, it's it, to agree to disagree without being disagreeable. I think that's really, really important. Like, that's really important. What's happened, though? And again, we've really gone somewhere. I didn't think we'd go. What's happened is sometimes now that this, I can disagree with you and still respect your opinion on things yes. and, and take them on board and actually take, and if, and if we have the debate, I, I can actually, my opinion can change, but I can't say take, I can't respect some, someone who says, you know, we want to marginalize further people who've already been marginalized. And, and that has crept into, to discourse and unfortunately we're getting I mean, we touched, we touched on about it <coughs> earlier when we were having a cup of coffee about how social media can be quite, you toxic know, toxic yeah that's it's a fair phrase and you know it's a place to publish now not to engage quite often which and i engage too often <laughs> so you know we look at it from that point of view but but are there reasons then to believe that even though you said it's a grim picture I, i've touched on i've touched on um afghanistan we've touched on palestine we've mentioned morocco we've mentioned iran we've mentioned kosovo we know there's tensions between China and Taiwan. Um, is there is there enough impetus? Is there enough? Will the systems that you talk about international law are they robust enough uh, to to bring us through what is actually a really really dangerous geopolitical environment? You can only be part of the solution. You can only ever be part of the solution. I've said that, and I know you're probably going to go, Angus. <laughs> yeah. Stop telling me this. I know this, but like it's the truth. It can only be part of the system. But are they robust enough? There's always room for improvement. Of course there is. I don't think anyone would tell you otherwise. You know, anyone who's realistic, we need to improve. I will say one thing that's really important for us all to consider, and I'd be as guilty as anyone else of being critical, but we're starting from zero mm-hmm. with a lot of this stuff. We're starting from zero with a lot of this stuff. And so over the last 30 years or 40 years, we've started from zero. You're also bringing legal systems from all around the world, mm. all around the world, and trying to put them together and deal with the most difficult... Um, problematic issues that are hugely pol- not just legal political mm. so cultural that is, that is a really difficult thing to do 
Now, that's not to say, you know, to 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 go back to something you said that there has to be um uh due diligence to use a, a yeah. phrase much used in Ireland over the last year but there has to be oversight there has to be constant discussion debate argument but we are moving somewhere I'm hopeful but I just worry again to loop around again is that the climate situation will make this so much more difficult mm. so much more difficult that that really that worries me that's why I'm much less positive than those five years ago because because it's partially my own fault because five years ago I probably didn't realise the extent of where we are and doing this masters I'm I'm um, presented with the realities of this on so many different areas because it's a kind of interdisciplinary masters um, that I'm got like wow this is really going to be hugely difficult and that worries me can I can I say then, to bring this to a close, that the law, while it's a part of it, has a job in selling the, the, the solutions, that giving people access to justice, giving people identity, like, I mean, there's nothing worse than someone saying that they're stateless. The law has a, has a role to play in that. And if you put a billion people on the move and you have conversations about pushing boats back out into the English Channel and this because they said they're stateless um, because if they're stateless then they don't have those rights mm. the law has a huge huge onus on them and then obviously on the flip side it also has an onus on saying well actually polluter pays how do we do this how do we successfully do this and that's maybe maybe where there's a I, I'm going to say a glimmer of hope well like you know to bring back to Ukraine um, on that point that's in essence what our Ukrainian colleagues are trying to do with their work on these cases on, you know, that crossover with war crimes, ecocide, environmental crimes, degradation of the environment. And then the polluter pays is this is this reparations mechanism that's being discussed. That's, you know, a very tangible way forward that the international community and the and our Ukrainian colleagues have put forward as a potential route. Um, like that's very interesting. Um, but the environmental crisis side of things, I really think is going to grow a lot. I really think it's very interesting. I'm, I'll be very honest with you. I'm looking forward to learning more about it myself. I don't know enough about it. I'm all, you know, you're always trying to learn more. There's always new stuff coming out. There's always new articles. I was on this morning looking at a really interesting article. Mm. So I think that's going to be really interesting for all of us. Um, hopefully it can be of some effect. Hopefully we can assist our Ukrainian colleagues in that area, but also on, on all the other areas. And hopefully we can do a decent job trying to help them. Well, if you took those learnings to some to to another realm, that's a good thing, isn't it? Yeah, and that's I suppose one of the other things that there's kind of cross fertilization between areas of life um, that could, you know, like everything, you, you there'll be there'll be um, lessons learned, and hopefully we can progress things because we've done we've done that. Well, we're trying to do that, learning from the mistakes we made in the other place, trying to improve on them. So hopefully we can do a bit better. We're, I'm laughing now because I heard a, a political editor yesterday tell someone that you know the the lessons were learned around um, around the the global financial crisis and and still hold to the line that austerity was what 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 got us out of the mix. So that <laughs> that myth pervades, which is just you know it's astounding. Um, Angus, I'm gonna leave it there. I will say before we wrap. That that it was it was disheartening to see in the Irish Examiner piece that they referenced you as a Cork uh, UCC graduate. So, um, <laughs> but it's true, Tony. I, I love Cork. I, I understand that, but I mean, I didn't understand. I, I, there's no universities in Cork, you know. What are you talking about? There's two fine universities in Cork. You can't have, the city can't. You, it's not even a city. It's anyway. Look, folks, I'm going to get in a lot of grief for this again. Um, really, th thanks for taking your time. Thanks for coming in in person. It's great to see you. It's great to meet you. Uh, and the work you guys do is very important. 
if you wanted to recommend anyone to have a look at at at, at, the, at the work of the of the, the crew the crew you're on sabbatical for, where should they check you out? Uh, well, Irish Rule of Law International website, um, or on Twitter, or LinkedIn, or Facebook, um, or Instagram, and then EUAM the same online um, as well on the website. You can find a lot of work about that, that's being done. Um, on again, as a reiteration, on behalf of of many of the listeners, because it's been done, we're we're being sent out. Myself and five of my colleagues, as a condor, as I said, and as a further one who's contracted, and we're working on your behalf. And I know that sounds kind of cheesy, but it's true. Yeah. And so I think that's really really important. Yeah. So thanks a lot, Ramila Mod, um, and yeah, Ganairi uh, Antalive. Listen, folks, um, we will be back shortly. We have uh, Sinn Féin's Morris Quinlevin. So, yeah, it, it never rains, but it pours. <laughs> Talk to you all very, very soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony, speaking to interesting people only. It's the Echo Chamber podcast. Subscribe now on Patreon.